Today my guest is the director of the Kampala Biennial, an independent curator and gallerist from Uganda. We talk about what it's like being sort of outside the international art market, you know, not living in some of those central locations. The differences between an African artist working and living on the continent and an African artist living elsewhere in the world and how that affects their work both conceptually as well as materiality. We also talk about repatriation and the need for more museums in Africa. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is Daudi Karunji. And I'm not even going to start with like trying to list off all the things you do because you do a lot. You are, I mean, so get, can you give me a rundown of like all the different <laughs> things that you're involved in these days? I'm an artist. Initially, I started as an artist. Um, I became a gallerist, a cultural entrepreneur. I'm an advisor, mentor, um, curator, the director of a Biennale. So I kind of exist in the ecosystem of art. I react to absence. I react to things that I don't see. I try to have them available. So in your, how did you even come to being in the creative industries? I can't, uh, I, I, you know, I imagine it's not like a, a great thing that parents are like, oh my gosh, I want my kids to be an artist or work in the arts industry. So was, were your parents creative? Did you have some great like teachers? Like what led you down the path to creativity? I don't know. I, I guess I was unfortunate or fortunate. I lost my parents when I was younger, when my dad died when I was one year and my mom when I was like 14. So I then grew up with my grandfather who was provided the shelter and gave me and my siblings a home to live in. So growing up from that point, I was quite independent. I was doing things that I wanted to do. Of course, going to university, you had to choose what you wanted to study. And I chose law first because it was acceptable thing to do. And then I chose art because it was the natural thing to do for me. Again, I don't know when this happened or how, but I know that during high school, I did art when I was in a school which had art class. So you have to know that in Uganda, art is not a, a subject taught in high school or primary school because, I mean, not all, some do, some don't. So it will be rare in some places. When it was in a school, I was always part of it, making art. I wanted to become an artist or study art at the university, and I did. So in Uganda, when I was in high school, the government used to pay for your university if you did well. No longer exists. <laughs> when I was in high school, you had uh, to choose four courses at university. And the first for me was law, because that was the acceptable art because that's the other thing. And I honestly don't remember the other two. So the government, because of my grades, I did well in art and history and some other subjects. I got art as my first choice. So what happens is that when you apply, the government places you where you're going to be. I was placed in art. 
Yeah, my wife is Czech, and they have the same sort of structure in the Czech Republic as well, where like in like 13, 14 years old, they place you in a certain track of a educational system. So you're going into the sciences, you're going to the arts or whatever you're going into, and that's sort of where you go, whether you like it or not. Hmm. Yeah, something similar, not monitored very well, though, here. They place you there and they leave you there. You might make it or you might not, but thrown in that line. I went to art school and I remember after the first semester, my uncle was working behind the scene to get me into law school. And they had finally got me a place in law school. So they asked me, do you want to transfer to law school? And I kind of enjoyed being in art school because I was doing nothing. You know, it was like the best time of my life. I was hanging out and partying and it was so nice. So I didn't want to go into the serious stuff of law school. So I decided to stay. So, yeah, that is how I got into art. Okay. Now, how did you transition from that into being, I mean, you're the director of an art gallery, which I'm assuming you opened. So you're, is it owned by somebody else or is it sort of your gallery? It's my gallery from art school because that's where it started. Like I said, I was hanging out and it was so much fun. But then I remember in my third year, it was a drawing class. We had this drawing class every Monday, which was everybody had to attend. And I was sitting in the back of the class and looking at, we're about 100 students in this class. It's the one that gathered everyone. I was in there and I saw 100 of us and I, I asked myself the question of, what are we going to do when we get out of here? Like for the first time in my almost three years at art school, it dawned on me that we're here to get an education so that we can become something useful or not. I remember after that class, I started looking for places. What do artists do? They make art and sell it in galleries. Then I started looking for galleries that I could show my work. And Kampala at the time had two galleries. One was a, a German-owned private gallery, and the other was the National Gallery, which was a family house somewhere next to the president's state house. The problem with the National Gallery, it was like any other government institution, extremely and poorly managed. So that wouldn't be my choice of where to go. The private gallery the German owned was good, but it represented the best artists at the time, and it was very hard to get into how can another hundred of us fit in there? That was my, my thinking. So I realized quickly that there's a need for more platforms, more spaces to, for me to show my work. And I get a space through my grandfather. So I did a research on what does a gallery take. I'd never been to a gallery, like a proper one. I didn't know anything about a gallery. But I knew that artists need galleries to sell their work. That's all I knew and galleries needed walls, so I needed walls. And my grandfather had this, he was an entrepreneur, <laughs> so he had these sort of buildings or warehouses that he never used because of, well, I guess they, they were problematic. There was this one location which used to flood. It was like in a sort of a swampy, a lowland area. So once in a year, it could flood and <laughs> for, to about a foot, in inside, so if the rains were so hard, it could flood, and 
So, but I said, well, I need the walls. So I got the walls. Beautiful building. It was a fantastic building, but it had that one problem. I had shows there. And the other thing I asked him was a diplomat. So I asked him to get me a guest list. He was an entrepreneur and a diplomat. He said, sometime we were at a party at home and there was all these people from diplomats and businessmen. So I said, can you get me that guest list that we had at that party? And then say, well, if that's all you want, he asked the secretary to give it to me. I got it and I invited all of those people, including him. <laughs> he said, come to the opening of an art gallery. And, you know, Matthew, I knew nothing. I'd never seen a gallery, really. But I knew that there's pictures on the wall. They have to be good. So I guess that's when I started trusting my eye for art, that even in the first works that I, even in my first show, I rejected some works. It was a group show. I rejected some works and accepted others. Like already at that point, I knew what should be good. So I placed these works in. Wait, hold on one second. Give me a timeline on this. When, what year was this? Oh, yes. Art school was 2001, and immediately after was the birth of the gallery. And then the gallery became, I think we had our first show in 2002, like the actual opening of the gallery in November. But the idea, everything, the work started much earlier. And then at this point, I don't know anything. I don't know who the best artist in the world, what the best gallery in the world is, what none of that stuff. So it means that then I started developing a gallery the way I knew gallery should be. So I did what I, what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do. When you look back, it has formed who I am today and the nature of, of my activity. And perhaps... The way I do what I do is somehow different from everybody else in my, my peers because mine comes from a lot of sacrifice and change. And there's a lot of situations that determine the things that we do because of the country where I am and the circumstances. So at this point, I couldn't, I wasn't making my own art. When I started a gallery, I worked for three years before I had my own show because I realized quickly that this gallery is a full-time job. It is something that you don't do and then you, you have some other stuff going on, you know. <laughs> it's a job in its own. And also to, you know, deal with the, the richest people. I mean, I was 21, 22, you're dealing with the CEO of, of a multi-million company or whatever because they're buying a painting and, and they're giving you more money than you've ever held. And then the whole thing of how to run a gallery, you know, you, you have to then pay the artist and then you have to, the money that you remain with. So later I, I did my first show. I think it was a collaboration with another artist. And thereafter I had a show every November for the next 10 years. So from 2005 until 2015 or something like that, I did my own shows. Now in 2015, so in between there, the location itself changed a lot because when my grandfather would get a tenant for that particular building, for some reason they'll say, hey, tomorrow you need to move, cause, cause, but you can go to the other property. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, sure. So I kept moving. 
Okay. And then, yeah, and then I moved. I, it was great. It was free, so it didn't matter the moving. And then I started, I think I started renting my own place. At some point, I reached a point where I wanted to close the gallery because it was stressful somehow. I don't know. It was just one of those things. You know, you, don't, you do something for 10 years, you feel like, what, what am I doing here? Now, in all this time, it doesn't make me any money. The clientele is also local. The maximum price of an artwork is about $700 at this point. Because at the time, the gallery was taking 30%. I was basically doing charity for 15 years or something <laughs> of my prime life. Well, that's a difficult business model. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 2015, I went to Venice to see the Biennale. And in Venice, okay, everything started around 2012 when some people came to Kampala, some curators, Simon Jami came to Kampala to do something with the, the architect David Ajay, I met some people and who had uh, Ugandan artists who had traveled to Dakar Biennale and they had gone to South Africa and wherever, you know, to Germany and so on. And we're having these conversations about the world outside our world, kind of moving away from our bubble, which we had existed in for a very long time. I remember my friend told me that, oh, Simone Jam is coming. I don't know whether you know Simone Jam. Not by name, but I'm, I'm better with artwork. He's a curator, responsible for Revenoir, which was a magazine that in the 90s started to show African artists in Europe and, you know, has curated some major works along. So somebody was like, oh, this guy's coming. I was like, oh, and David Ajay is like the lead architect in, on the continent that has done a lot of work. I met them. We, we hung out. Then there was some British ladies who came to start a, a non-profit center in Kampala for art. It was called 32 East. So they came also with uh, this kind of energy that talked about global stuff, you know. We got involved in a conversation of globalism and, and, and local, you know. And then at the time, there used to be the East African Biennale, which was going on from Dar es Salaam for some years. And that year, 2012, they wanted to move it to Kampala, think Nairobi, Rwanda. So they asked us in Kampala to host it. I don't remember why, but I remember something about the guy who organized it worked was a diplomat in Dar es Salaam and he had to go back, leave his job. So the project was dying because the severe was going. In Kampala, we had raised money. We had organized ourselves. So we decided to create something like the Biennale. So we created a thing called Cla Art. Cla art was meant to be something about public art, you know, to show art to the Ugandan public. And we organized a fantastic one with shipping containers in 2012. Such a wonderful event. But at around the same time, Cla art was also a project that belonged to everybody, meaning we were about eight institutions of art. So galleries, the museum, Alliance Francaise, Centrum. So all these, you know, when something is owned by all but none, it becomes a bit of an issue because you don't get any continuity. You don't, decisions are not easily made. So Clart has later become a project for 
32 institutes, which is the institution I talked about earlier. So in 2014, we started the Kampala Biennale through an organization called Kampala Arts Trust. Now, in the meantime, I'm running a gallery, but more importantly at this point is that the Biennale is useful because there's a global conversation going on and nobody knows about Kampala and Kampala doesn't know anything about anybody else in terms of art. Kampala Biennale and, and Kla Art was a tool for local integrations, local artists producing art for the local population, the guy on the street to come and see what's happening with art, and so installations and public art for that matter. That was good and all, but we were still not getting out of our bubble, you know, we're still in our Kampala bubble. Kampala Biennale was meant to forge those conversations, and specifically on the continent. We needed to know artists from Nigeria and South Africa and Malawi, and we needed all of those artists to know each other. And we formed the first Biennale, which was 45 artists, all from Africa, from 23 African countries. And all but about five came to Kampala for a week. This was for the first time, one of the, and they paid, we didn't have any money, so they paid for themselves to come to Uganda, to Kampala. And for the first time, we had that kind of conversation. Artists from South Africa, from Kenya, from Uganda, from Angola, from, they were all here and we did the exhibitions in different galleries and the museum and some places. And that became the beginning of international, the day Uganda went outside its fence and vice versa. That's 2014. So the next year, 2015, I go to Venice for the Biennale. I remember going there and telling somebody, because that's the year that the late Okwi curated it. And I remember telling a friend that the Biennale was like I had gone to heaven, at heaven. And while in heaven, you could see God. And, oh, that's Angel Michael over there. And that's Angel Gabriel. And that's, you know. And you probably could see Saturn or whatever. But the point was, it, I remember it was heaven. And because it was curated for the first time by an African, it was even more than like real heaven. Because then you had, all, you had everybody in the art world, everyone there. And that changed everything for me. And I said, I must be part of this, whatever it takes. The gallery must be part of it. Ugandan artists must be part of it. My, my goal must extend to being at this level. So I think while I was at Venice, I started thinking about what do I need to do to be part of this? And quickly I realized, because everybody was there that you could talk to about what you needed to do. But I quickly also realized that everybody was there probably asking the same question. You know, so when I discovered the art world doesn't have rules in a way. You know, like people make up their rules as they go. So I, I realized that this is a place that one can be. I also decided to go home and bring my whole family to the same table. My gallery activity changed in a sense that we started to look at artists and representing artists, but also practicing the model of gallery representation in an extremely professional way, but also to look more into the art and critique the art that we are showing the world so that we are able to present what is not being seen. I started going to 
2015, I think, the same year, we went to Johannesburg Art Fair. I went with one artist who was doing a performance piece because they had a performance focus that year. While I was there, I asked the curator then to consider an East African to center the next art fair on East Africa because East Africa had not yet been seen on the Joburg Art Fair circuit. So we had a focus on East Africa because of that recommendation and galleries from Addis Ababa, Nairobi, Kampala, we all were there. Artists therefore from our regions were there. And that was kind of the beginning. And I joined that kind of fraternity of galleries championing African artists. And in this case, artists that live on the continent. Uh, there's a big difference between artists that they could be African, but working in London and artists working in Kampala. They don't have the same exposure. An African artist in Africa, their subject matter will be influenced by where they are. So, so many times we'll find that the, they tend to be more exciting because of if one has been to Africa, they would know how exciting any city in Africa is because of the nature. The so-called non-organized nature of Africa can be quite fascinating. There's a lot going on in the culture, in the society that influences the nature of the work. And I think that is what an artist from Africa would show the world. They would show the world something that has not been seen. But that same artist doesn't have access to materials. Or, okay, maybe they do. Even with materials, because they don't have access to certain wonderful paints, they will create a, another way to make paint and to paint, which brings up a high level of innovation in terms of use of material. But they are not going to be exposed to any markets they will kind of make this fantastic art, but they will not continue doing it because there will be no market per se, especially if there are no players like my gallery, for instance. I mean, my gallery could have been anywhere in the world at this moment. I could have moved to New York if I wanted, because I can. But that would mean that the artist who is in Uganda cannot walk to a place of inspiration to think different. Because if they came from Africa and they're in Europe, they still have the inspiration and then they have everything. They, they have access to materials and all these things, but they also have access to the infrastructure. So they can go to a museum. They can go and see the latest show at the Tate. Collector can visit their studio. They can be written about by the press because writer comes from the same city in London or something, and they can go to their studio and write about them curators can access them much easier so they'll be part of that big show in Paris or wherever and in order for a curator to pick an artist from Uganda they kind of either have to come to Uganda or they have to meet a Dowdy who they would ask for a recommendation there's this barrier that makes these two artists different the scheme of things well I, I have a question Early on, you mentioned something about like circumstances in your country. And like, I come from America and I live in Europe now. And, and I, there's not a lot of like horribly dramatic, you know, so there are no wars, there's no uh, famine, there's no like anything like this. I generally live in, you know, I don't know, first world countries. And so I'm wondering, like, the, what are some of the circumstances that you're, you were talking about, but also how has that affected the 
production of art and the engagement with art. Challenges that we have is that our government switched off the internet because we had elections into the in the entire country and then they returned the internet but no social media so this call we are on is managed is a social media category which we have we have to use a vpn in order to access so every time i'm speaking to you the vpn times out and then it has to be loaded again something so these are some of the challenges that uh, an artist here will have there's a lot of gray area there's no policy on art in uganda so there's no service appropriation. Again, it's like a bubble. That's how I, I managed to do what I do in a place like this, because I am able to wake up and do. You know, there's no restrictions per se, because nobody understands what it is that we're doing here. It's, it has its good parts. But if it was structured, perhaps I wouldn't be doing what I do, because then it will become bureaucratic. All right, back to the the fact that you run an art gallery in Uganda. I'm always interested. It's like a lot of people say, like Americans buy American artists, European buy European artists, and like and it's only those few unique collectors that sort of you know choose to collect Asian art or African art or some so basically some place where they don't live or is their heritage. So. When it comes to your collectors and your your the people that you sell your your artists' works to, are they do you find that they're mostly uh, African or are there people all over the world collecting for from you? A bit of both, but uh, since 2020 with a pandemic, we got a surge in in black collectors, mostly from the U.S. But we've been selling art to African collectors on the continent and a lot of major collections, putting together a collection of contemporary African art, we've been selling to them. But 2020 brought in individuals who are in the U.S. who are create, collecting. And that led to more individuals from pretty much all over the world who sold works to collectors in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, in Japan, Middle East, and in Europe. And I think because of the pandemic, there's a way it democratized art in a sense that when it when the shutdown happened whoever was on social media is the one who was seen somehow i remember seeing these big new york galleries on social media and some smaller galleries knew it better than they could do well how has that whole covid lockdowns all this kind of stuff affected both your ability to produce, exhibit, and sell in Uganda, but also then, of course, worldwide? Production has not been affected per se because COVID instructed us to go home and stay there. So artists went home and stayed there working. But it affected us in the form of exhibitions. We don't have local visitors to the gallery. Even now that restrictions are lifted, you know, people, they don't want to be in crowds, you know. They don't want to go out. They will really limit where they go. It has definitely affected our ability to show internationally at international affairs. It has affected our ability to travel. So as much as we are doing okay because of the previous work we had done pre-2020 COVID, we could do much more if we could travel, if we could attend art fairs, if we could 
continue to present, meet other people. We now have to meet online. It has its advantages because I've been contacted by some people that probably would never contact me. Again. Boy, boy, the <laughs> VPN really doesn't like you. It does not like, and this is, I mean, internet was fine the whole day. And just at the time when we decide to meet, it goes off. I don't know what that means. Okay, you you, you were in the middle of talking about democratize. The uh, COVID was uh, democratizing because you were being connected to people that you would never would have the opportunity to be connected to before COVID. I think back in the day, you you traveled, went to this event in New York, and you met these people at that event, and those people became the people that you connect with in that thing that you do. But now, people don't travel. So everybody has resorted to being online. And by being online means that you can meet anybody that you want to meet. And if there is substance where with that person that you're trying to meet, you will most probably make a connection and you most probably make build a relationship. When you went to an art fair, somebody could be dressed up and that's the ticket to be part of a certain clique. But now you join the clique because you have something to do and something that matters to that ecosystem. I think that opportunity has come up and I'm, I'm sure if everybody else has managed to speak to different kinds of people during this. And I think after this pandemic, we will have a different kind of ecosystem, a different kind of art world, I think. There will be new relationships, thousands that will affect the old relationships and a new future will be built based on that. I noticed in your your uh, website for the gallery that you all were at the Abu Dhabi Art Fair. What, what year did you go there? Uh, I didn't go. It was last year. We went, we participated for the first time in the Abu Dhabi. It was an online fair, so it wasn't a physical fair, but there was a lot of interaction there was the, their their program was quite interactive. Well, I lived in Abu Dhabi for six years, so I was kind of hoping that we may have mm. crossed paths at an art fair, but we didn't. If he was just last year, no, we didn't. Okay, no. all right. Now, you also started a, a art criticism journal. It's called Start. Um, what brought you? So, I mean. The thing is, is like you're writing so many different things. Like you're a practicing artist of your own work. You're running a gallery. You're being a, a sort of an independent curator. You're running an art fair, and you also then create a publication that criticizes well all your other jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no longer practicing artist since uh, five years now. Okay. So that title I took it off because. I'm too busy for it to focus well. The journal came about in 2007 in, because in 2004, something like that, when I just started the gallery, I started these conversations on the ecosystem of art in, in Uganda. And I started the journal because at the same time, there was a need for a museum. So we wanted to build a museum in 2004. But... We had no clue what it takes. We still don't know what it takes. But more importantly, we didn't have the money to build it or the collection to build it or the, the stories to archive. We decided to create a journal called Start Journal. It means to start 
you know, like the question of when is the best time to do something, you do it when you start. Mm-hmm. Also, it, it is written ST, I remember the first logo was ST.art, like Saint Art, like this, you know, so the, the magazine was to be like the Saint Art. But the idea of the magazine was to archive, to review, critique, and therefore archive at activity in Uganda since from 2007 because there was no material written about the art practices that were going on in Uganda. That magazine is still on, it's now online, but a few years ago it lost the energy because it is a purely non-profit and nobody wants to write for free. And I, I don't have the money to invest in it and I don't have the writers to invest the money in to write because we have another bigger problem. We don't have enough good writers in Uganda. We might have one or two, and if one or two start writing for you, they can't write for you 10 articles a year because then come staff writers. Over the years, we have developed some initiatives and workshops on critical writing. One of the things that I really wish I could overcome is to help develop a group of writers, critical art writers in this country because they're essential to writing our stories. There's a few developing, but there needs to be like real effort in that direction so that the magazine or the journal didn't die, but became ill and affected by the lack of writers. So it's in hospital, but not in intensive care. can be visited. All right. You mentioned the idea of like trying to create museums and other things like this in Uganda. And I'm, I recently actually had a guest on the podcast who is a specialist in African art. And we talked about the idea of repatriation of works, the historical works and, and uh, cultural items that were taken from different countries. Is this a, a question that you also sort of uh, think about the idea of having things that are, you know, in museums around the world repatriated to Uganda? I've had the whole repatriation thing, and the problem, we don't have museums. We don't have space. I wanted to come back if it is there. So I haven't done any research on what exists. I know a lot of stuff exists in the UK, in the National Gallery, because of the colonial past, UK being whatever it was to Uganda. A lot went away, but my bigger, before I even look at what went away and what therefore needs to come back, I think about what where it goes. You see, we have this Uganda Museum, which is a museum in itself. Like the, the museum holds these artifacts, old cultural material, but the museum is also a museum in a sense. Everything is being archived, including itself. Meaning there's no growth, there's no you know known change and growth and catalyst. Nothing is happening in that direction. And that the only space that we have that is doing that. Of course, there's no government interest in cultural development. There's no conversation in government talking about developing space for art and culture presentation or exhibition. When it comes to Uganda's part of repatriation, I think what I would do, I would want to know what exists that belongs to Uganda and where it is. And then I would sign a memorandum of understanding of custody. I say, okay, this is ours and this is it. Okay? And it's here with you. Keep it for us <laughs> until when we can find where to put it. 
but which is not the same in Nigeria or Benin or something. I think in West Africa, they've developed these structures. I think in Nigeria, for instance, they have these privately owned museums and places like that. And I think such should recall their, their art and artifacts so that they can go back to where they belong. But on this question of museums, I also believe an African a museum of today kind of has to be different. I don't think it's a building anymore. I think it's community. I've been asking myself this question, but I never get around to think about the right answer to it. But I feel like a museum, being a room and a house that people enter and look at things, yeah, it's so boring. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. I just, I travel a lot and I visit art. You know, I travel for, for work, which is art, a lot. And I rarely enter a museum. I did so in the beginning of my travels, and I went to a few of them, and I just realized how boring and cold museums can be when you enter there. You know, they have the air conditioned, so it's a bit cold. I come from Africa; it's very hot. You go in there, and it's like it's cold and quiet, and kind of depressing. And sometimes you see something nice, but I think there's a need to think about that thing called museum in a totally different way, in a, in a modern way, in a way of today in a contemporary way. Well, the, the, the big museums are very devoid of context. Like mm. they basically just have like, you know, bare walls, quiet spaces, and they just say, hey, this is a beautiful object, appreciate it. But, they, but the, you, don't, you don't get the, the feeling and the moods and the, and the lifestyle and the time period and all the kinds of things. Like it's, it's removed from all of those things and just placed in this sort of sterile environment and you're supposed to appreciate it or not and that's it mm. so that that is a general issue of of most museums unfortunately yeah and that's the problem there's a need to change that otherwise they die they otherwise they become they they, they become museums <laughs> they they do become museums in and of themselves yes <laughs> yeah all right yeah. so when you travel around, I imagine that you probably have common questions that people ask you, you know, like, why should I be collecting Ugandan art? What, you know, what, what are some of those kinds of questions that come up frequently for you that you have to somehow, I don't know, explain or defend for, for the potential people that might be interested? The first question is, where is Kampala or Uganda for that matter? I looked it up before I got on here with you, to be honest. <laughs> yes. Believe it or not, that question comes up a lot when I go to art fairs or when I travel. And I tell them to Google it. But the other question is there's a lack of knowledge of who the artists are and who, because people are not curious enough. People are lazy. They just want to see whoever New York Times writes about or the art newspaper or whatever. And then they go and say, oh, we want that artist. But real collectors must look for art, and they must look for art in the right places, I think. So people don't know the artist, so they ask a lot about who is the artist. And apart from asking the country, they ask about the artist. And sometimes I find it so disturbing to explain who the artist is, like how old are they or whatever, and probably they want to see a picture of the artist or something like that. And that part really bothers me because 
I'm in a business that of selling art. I'm not selling artists. So when people ask me about the artist, it's just too much energy explaining who the artist is. We are almost towards the sale. If I say this, we are going to make the sale, then I'll tell you who the artist is. <laughs> you know, we're like towards the end. And if I mention this, then and I could even sweeten it, make it to be like, yeah, it's a lovely young man. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll buy it. And then show you a picture. Well, okay, wait, I have a question within what you just said about like not selling the artist, but selling the art. Do uh, I didn't do huge amounts of research, sadly. And like in in America and Europe, we, we're emphasized on like not only making beautiful or, or uh, you know, engaging works of art, but we're also encouraged to be able to write eloquently, create artist statements and all these other kinds of things. Is this something that's uh, that's a, a key component in it in the art world in Africa also? No, it's come up. And I remember back in the day, it was a big deal. You know, artist statements. At, even when I was an artist, I think I never wrote an artist statement. It's just so hard. We are artists. We are not writers. Thank you. you. Know? So I agree we, 100%. But we are required to have an artist statement. And I think that idea didn't work. And I think till today, the idea of artists writing artist statement doesn't work. I think artists should create artwork that could compel writers to write about it and collectors to collect it. It's come up because, obviously, our system is borrowed system, the Western system, that, you know, even when you Google how to be an artist, there will probably somebody will say, oh, you have to write a good artist statement and whatever and, and, and so on and so forth. Like, when you ask me how to be an artist here, it's like, you make art. And what is art? It's not painting. It's not whatever you make, whatever you think is art. And a lot of art in Uganda, but also in Africa, has no definition. We know that there are paintings. We know that there are drawings on paper. We know there are inks on paper. We know there are bronze sculpture, whatever. But I have an artist who works with paper. It makes paper beads and makes huge tapestries that are so mag magical. I have another artist who melts plastic bottles with sand and some other stuff and creates these incredible sculptures. So I don't know whether it's called a paper bead work sculptural. And the question of statement is very, I don't, I don't think it has succeeded. And I've also worked with artists who are fantastic writers. And some of them have ended up telling them that you are a fantastic writer, meaning not a fantastic artist, but a fantastic writer. Mm -hmm. The point here, we, we are artists. We shouldn't be writers. I love it. I'm, Other people should. I'm all for it. Now, okay, you mentioned like using what I would define as non-traditional materials, you know, melted plastic, sand, these kinds of things. Like, I mean, I come from the Eurocentric, American-centric background of like, you know, oil painting, bronze sculpting, all this kind of stuff. Like, so are you... Are the mediums that are used by the artists you represent, or even just the artists you know, do they are they trying to fit into that sort of Eurocentric thing, or are they really um, embracing the fact that like they are, they seem to like? It sounds really bad. Okay, the way that me as a non-African, as an outsider, look at a lot of African art, it's 
often recycling or using uh, uh, available materials in order to be expressive and creative. Like, is is that right? <laughs> or is this propaganda? I don't know. I think where your question started from, artists using this tradition of materials. The thing is, everybody, and what I've noticed is because I've been doing this for 20 years, I've noticed artists starting off with whatever comes to mind, which I call original. And then lately I see an artist working with, because the top artist from Africa on Artsy is making paintings, so they start making paintings. And they're really good at making paintings. If they're making portraits, they make fantastic, better than that top artist on Artsy, you know? But then they lose the other thing that they were doing that was so unique that brought them even the, the little fame and, and the money that they got at the time. And I've also seen that the moment they start doing these paintings, they don't make any more money. If they were making money, they make the same money and, and so on and so forth. I find that it's, I think it's freedom of expression and people are not using it very well in Africa because of the West. There's this need for African artists to paint and sculpt in bronze and make paintings that look like the Mona Lisa or, or sculptures that look like David. And that's so sad because with just individuality that lies with artists today, in, in Africa especially, is so strong that if only they did that and if institutions like mine continued to identify those artists and bring them to the world, the world is going to see different art and it will be better the art world would be a better place and enjoyable with less repetitions. Oh, I, repetitions. I agree like completely. You know, like a good Asian artist should not be working like the Mona Lisa and, and a great African artist should be, you know, doing the things that are inherent to their culture and their life and their lifestyles. I mean, it, it's fascinating how people do sort of pick up on these uh, sort of almost homogenized versions of like, oh, this is what the art world wants. So this is what I should try to do, mm. which is a very unfortunate situation. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's quite unfortunate. It's like when people say, oh, I'm using this, the best, my oil paints come from France and from the factory that Rembrandt used. And so, you know, and you're like, what the heck, you know, <laughs> just... Yeah, so you need to fix that. Well, it, it's it's like the old saying, you know, a poor musician blames his instrument. So, like, yeah, just having great materials does not make you a great artist. It's your ability to be expressive. Correct. And if it's paint that works for you, let it be. But you should start from the point of, I mean, I have a residency program that I started a year ago, and to join my, it's private, so. To join it, you must be able to see something else in you that beyond what I've ever seen. The idea is that when you leave, you've created something that is so yours that no one can take away from you. No one. Now it becomes up to you whether you're going to grow it and make use of it or not, because everybody has their thing and, and we need to develop our things. Well, I mean, things. that's an interesting question that I often ask a lot of gallerists. Like, if you're looking at an artist who's asking for representation with you, what are some of the characteristics that say, this is somebody I want to work with? 
I look for really unique artists. I look for an artist whose work or style of work I've never seen. And if I have ever seen it, I want to be able to compare it with who I saw it with and then see how different it is. If that style is like the other one, I will not take that artist because I pride myself of exceptional artists. I want to say, oh, there's nobody like this. So I don't want to say nobody like this. And then and then you say, oh, but this one is like Peter and James. Then I'll be like, oh, shit. So that is one thing I look out for. Then two, I look out for an artist. Okay, once you're an artist who's making something exceptional, I look at your ability to grow. Is there room for this artist working like this to grow? What can they do with this? What What is the bigger picture? If they were to present something at a Biennale, a major work, what would it look like? And is it possible? And, and so on. What is the extent of growth for this artist? And then lastly, I look at their professionalism. What kind of artist are you? Because in Africa, we have another problem, which is loyalty. So you find that if a, a Ugandan gallery like myself gets an artist and I invest, because galleries invest a lot of money and time in artists to make them who they become. When you do that, you don't want to invest so much money and then some gallerist from New York or Germany or Czech <laughs> comes in and says, <laughs> comes in and says, oh, hey, you artist, I'm so-and-so, I was part of the Christie's something, something, and I did the blah, blah, blah with so-and-so, and I want to work with you in a place in Miami, you know? Poor artists will be like, oh my God, place in Miami, she worked with so-and-so, and she has a nice picture on the internet that makes her look like a model or whatever, and say, oh, I, I, I will, uh, and then they, they kind of sneak off and start working with this other person. But this other person does not even have the courtesy to go to the gallery that they saw the work at and say, hey, these are artists that you have. I'm sure you've put so much effort in them. How do we work together so that we can push this artist, whatever, ahead? And then becomes a three-way negotiation. Or there are collectors who will come and they look at the artist's production, say this artist makes one painting a month, and then they'll say, I'm going to buy all your work. And the, the price at the moment could be like $2,000 a painting. So I'm going to buy all your work that you make. You only sell it to me. And I can even advance you money. I can give you more than you need. I'll even give you a place to work from. Now, poor artists are like, oh, great. I'm going to earn money for everything that I touch. And then they can be able to buy that car and that jacket and that shoe that they've been looking at and whatever it is that they want. And then they lose that whole... So they spend five years working with this person and they lose that whole growth exposure opportunity. So... I look for artists that have faith and I can trust to, to have some loyalty, to, to understand that this is a long game and we have to play it that way. There's no one who has ever made it quickly and they stayed there. And there's no one who has made it without people they trust. Everybody that I've known who moved in that direction and they ended up with some people who looked nicer or looked like models and dropped names, they go and they quickly regret it, and it often ends in tears. But because they are talented, they might bounce back because they are talented, but nobody would want to touch them because they are burnt. 
no collectors would want them because these capitalists will grab and you know, mess them up and their market and their value and their image to a point that I look at these galleries, they're like scavengers and then moves away. So when I can't see that in the beginning with an artist, I can't work with them because I have no, I've lived enough to, in this industry to know where to waste my time. All right, let's sort of wrap this up. So I have two last sort of questions. One is I, I would love to hear three artists that you somehow inspire you that you somehow that you think need to, this should be getting more exposure. Uh, three artists, unfortunately or fortunately, they're going to. Oh, not really. I was going. I, 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 I was going to say they were going to be mine, but I'll add a fourth who is not mine. So the first one is an artist called Henry Mzili Mujunga. He's a Ugandan. He's a painter. He is responsible for movements of artists in Uganda, I think, late 90s till today, and he's still a practicing artist. He's extremely intelligent, and you can see his work on my website, Henry Mzili Mujunga. There's this young man, Richard Atugonza, who is currently working with the plastic and all sorts of mixed media. is a young man, but extremely dedicated to the work that he does. And I've never seen anything like this in my entire sculpture research. Works like the ones that he makes. I find them quite original. And, and I know the person, the artist, who grows. Every time I see his new work, it is different and better than the last one and so on. So I believe these are artists that are going to be extremely successful. There is an artist who is already doing very well called Sungi Mulengea. She's doing extremely well today and started working together about two years ago. She's a self-taught artist who just was in banking and then moved to art and she's just phenomenal. And the one that was not with the gallery, but I've worked with, is called Gael Maski. Gael Maski is Congolese. I did a show with a group show where I, I featured three of his works, and I acquired one, and I, I think he's extremely talented. He's a collage artist, fantastic collage. I've never seen anything like that. So I have this interest in artists from East Africa as well. So it's just because nowhere in the world do you find East African artists represented. I find that that should be done. All right. Last question would be any advice to the next generation? The next generation of artists or gallerists? <laughs> Whichever you think you have better advice for. I would say for, for artists, they should. I, I, I recently wrote in an interview that Artists should, art, being an artist is a calling, and if you hear your calling, you, you have to answer it and put work into it. Not everybody I know now is a good artist. The exceptional artists who we see, like artists like Sungi that we see that everybody adores, is not because they were promoted by somebody, it's because that is their thing. But the other thing that I see with them is that they put so much work. They work nine to five. They work eight hours a day, Monday to Saturday, just like anybody who works in a bank or something like that. I would advise artists, when you find your thing, just keep working. Don't worry about selling your work or who will buy or whatever. Just keep working because it is only the work that you create that people buy. It is the work that you create that people write about. 
It is the work that you create that is exhibited. It is the result of your work that we celebrate, not the idea of your possible work. And to collectors, I think they should look and stop following names that are published by whoever. Because not that the names that are published are all wrong. It's just one must do own research, try to understand an artist and try to understand where the artist is coming from. And more importantly, those collectors should look into Africa, artists on the continent, because there's no, there's very limited visibility for these artists. And it is necessary that these artists are seen, they are collected, they're encouraged, and they're celebrated. Because an artist in New York it's easier for them to see that gallerist or that collector, that person, than an artist in Kampala. And lastly, to the gallerists, new gallerists, should, they should not find developed artists and take them away from the galleries that have developed them because it's like poaching. It's illegal in Africa when you go to the national parks. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I hope I've answered some of your questions. Oh, this has been amazing. You're literally my first guest from the entire continent of Africa. Wow. Very exciting for me. Fantastic. This podcast, The Wise Fool, with me, Matthew Doles, as your host, is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. If you enjoy the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would also be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Additionally, we're looking for your recommendations for future guests. We want you to feel more involved in the podcast. If there's someone you respect or admire that you want to hear more about, please send me a message through Instagram and I'll do my best to get them as a guest. Additionally, if you have any questions for future guests, like wanting to know about how they got their projects funded, or what were the most useful or helpful parts of their career growth, send me those questions and I will be sure to ask them to future guests. Please be sure to also follow us on Instagram and Facebook and tell your friends as well. In the near future, we will also be starting a newsletter, so please go to our website, wisefoolpod.com, and sign up to receive that. And no matter what you're doing right now, Try to make sure to have fun.